This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. What did he do? I'm sorry. Pack one back. Be ready in 10 minutes. we do the right thing here it will escalate what's about to happen might seem like imperfect parenting why are you doing this stunt? why is he doing this to you Hello and welcome to Still Watching the Mosquito Coast, presented by Vanity Fair and Apple TV+. I'm Preeti Chibber, uh, co-host of Desi Geek Girls and author. And I am Chris File. I am a freelance writer and the co-host of the This Head Oscar Buzz podcast. We're here to talk about the first four episodes of the new Apple TV Plus drama series, The Mosquito Coast, which stars Justin Thoreau and Melissa George. And later in the episode, we'll be sharing a conversation I had with Melissa George about what we've seen from the series so far, especially her huge character moment in episode four. The show is based on the novel by Paul Thoreau, who, as you may have heard, is also the uncle of the show's star, Justin Thoreau. The book was adapted into a movie in 1986, starring Harrison Ford, but as we'll talk about, the new series is really leaning in on telling its own story. So, Chris, on your podcast, This Had Oscar Buzz, you guys like to do a 60-second plot description for each show you're discussing. So would you like to do the honors of walking us through what we've seen on Mosquito Coast thus far? Yeah, absolutely. I'll um, at least get us through the first four episodes. In two, one, go. Okay, the Mosquito Coast follows the Fox family, led by their father, Allie, who's a small-time inventor obsessed with corporate consumerism, and their mother, Margot, who is isolated from her seemingly affluent parents. Their daughter, Dina, is the more rebellious child of the to the father's, like, paranoid strictures, while their son, Charlie, is way more quietly doting. The Foxes are... Uh, also under one of many false identities, and go on the run once they face eviction and federal agents are on their trail. Uh, they convince a connection to help them cross the border into Mexico, but are met by a militia resulting in a shootout that leaves their connection dead, but his associate Chewie alive as they trek through the desert. Chewie gets bitten by a snake and is revived uh, by a cartel that take the foxes in. Foxes are then separated with Charlie's life threatened, and it's hinted that Allie had formerly uh, played a part in the death of their members, but then with Chewie Chewie's help and Margot's like emerging uh, wits and power, the family escapes to continue on their path of unwitting destruction as they evade the authorities. That was amazing. <laughs> that like, was a very that was a very truncated um, <laughs> uh, description of the first four episodes, which all feel really packed. I mean, I I even went back and watched the movie for this, and like when we say that the show is definitely taking its own angle with this material. It really is like, it almost feels like it's building towards this huge family odyssey with each episode, kind of like a vignette with a whole different location, a whole new set of stakes um, that just keeps like building and mounting and getting more and more intense. Yeah, I was excited to see. Like, I didn't, I didn't know anything about the show coming into it, um, except that I love Justin Thoreau and basically everything he's <laughs> ever done. Uh, and so I was excited to see him in a new prestige drama because you know he has a, a great track record there. And every episode is so tense and so like, like my heart rate just goes up and up and up and up. And I feel like what they've really got a great handle on is managing that tension and letting it grow at this like strangely, like somehow combo slow pace and fast pace. Mm -hmm. Right. Where it's like so much happens in each episode, but they're moving incrementally forward. And also uh, as the family is kind of going on this odyssey, we learn 
more and more um, about their background that actually recontextualizes what we thought about them or what we knew about them. Um, especially thinking of Margot and her call to her family that kind mm-hmm. of kicks off what the first episode or is very early in the first episode and uh, the kind of tension and almost terror to uh, Melissa George's performance where she is calling her family and it's, it seems very dangerous for her to do so. You almost wonder because we've been introduced to Allie's paranoia if there was like um, a, a some type of thing that she wasn't going along with what this family is. But ultimately it turns out that there's more of a conspiracy at play and that uh, there may actually be some surveillance on this family that they are trying to escape. Yeah, it's it's very interesting because I, I was of the same mind about Margot initially because of that phone call mm-hmm. and because of the kind of passive way she interacts with what's happening in her family. You know, she's kind of isolated in her room, typing away while all the action is happening around her. But there's that moment where the um, surveillance has kind of come to fruition. The police have found them. Allie is like getting all his stuff together in his workshop and she comes in and I thought it was going to be this big blow up fight of like, you can't keep making us go anywhere. And then it flips and she's super in and she's Mm -hmm. all in on this with him. And I was like, oh, okay, that's, you are a far more active part of this than I anticipated you being. Mm -hmm. But uh, like, as it goes on, um, that's one thing I'm glad you brought up Justin Thoreau from the beginning, because I think he's giving a really interesting performance as well, because it could very quickly kind of become this overly paranoid, like, you know, we've seen those performances before by people who like are distrustful of the world, you know, they have these like, uh, I mean, his character specifically is kind of about consumerism and waste that's like at the root of our culture. And it could be very easy for him to be giving this broad loud you know kind of you know from a soapbox shouting performance but he's actually um it's incredibly low key and builds in this paranoid sense that like when we actually do get these reveals um about his connection to the nsa um it it makes so much sense Mm -hmm. to in this character whereas he could have very easily lost us by doing something perhaps bigger yeah like something kind of absurd i think the moment that uh turned it for me was in i want to say it's the second episode it's the second episode um or maybe the end of the first it's the end of the first sorry when um his daughter saves him from getting arrested from the police she rams into the car Mm -hmm. uh dina rams into the car with with uh the truck and she pulls him out and he's sitting in the passenger seat while she's driving away and he looks so proud of her and it's this like very quiet moment that Thoreau plays like wonderfully because he's just staring at her almost in like awe and love and like, wow, like look at what she's done at, after she rammed her truck into a police car. Yeah. I, I like, mean, yep, the show okay. takes these kind of really bold leaps um, and the especially from episode to episode, because each episode is very different. And like Mm -hmm. we mentioned, the stakes get higher and higher, but it's kept really grounded by these subtle performers that are, you know, making this really believable family. I I think this is like a good point to talk about Allie and kind of, um, you know, there's, there is this notion of family men who are driven to these desperate, desperate measures. And I think a lot of what we were talking about plays into that with Thoreau. But it mm-hmm. by the end of the fourth episode, it's almost, it's a subversion of that notion of like, I have to take care of my family. I'm the patriarch of this family. Clearly, what we watch over the course of these four episodes is every decision he makes, we are meant, we're not necessarily meant to follow him on it because he is, mm-hmm clearly through performance showing us as he's getting a little more and more unhinged and it's out of his control as much as he wants it to be inside of his control. The paralleling of the uh, episode two, when he has to get out and talk to those militiamen and the end of episode four, where he's on his knees and Chewie is pointing the gun at him was Mm -hmm. just a, like, I thought that was a great progression for us to be like, you're not the hero. Like you are, you are throwing things away and, 
I, I feel like the show has played it really interestingly thus far. Yeah, and kind of spotlighting the, especially in that final monologue from Chewie in episode four, the kind of that the Fox family can kind of also be a product of the type of, you know, destruction and consumption that they, you know, have, that they, you know, think that they are against ideologically. Um, yeah. And it's, it's also an interesting trope, this whole like uh, patriarch in crisis um, that you see in a lot of TV shows, like something like Breaking Bad. It feels like a subversion of that too. Um, it's certainly a subversion of this character, at least in the film version, if uh, listeners had seen the Harrison Ford one, which is probably closer, not exactly like a Walter White, but you know, closer in what you expect to see from this type of narrative. Um in that, you know, he is kind of giving the, like, loud, uh, shrieking performance. Um, And it's also just a character that's way more... um, This version, I think, is way more interested in, like, complexity and its, you know, context in this type of genre. Well, what's nice is they're not giving us this sort of... Like, Walter White, for example, you had... he, He had cancer, he couldn't pay for it. There was this sympathetic, like, sympathetic note to him. Mm-hmm. that I think this show has done a good job of not necessarily like falling prey to because yes, they're like, they have these bills that they can't pay. He's not getting paid enough, but Thoreau plays it with such anger that mm-hmm. it kind of cuts through that sympathy a little bit. You know, his reaction to his daughter having a cell phone was so wild and so uncomfortable and this like complete isolation of these kids um, or the kind of... um off offhand way he reacts to a cop who asks like should my kid shouldn't your kid be in school whatever it is kind of cuts through any notion of like intense sympathy you can have for this Mm -hmm. man because there is clearly this like i am better than everybody around me kind of thing that's going on (laughs) (laughs) well and i think as we as the show has progressed and we learn a little bit more of the why that type of behavior is there and perhaps a little bit why you know margot goes along with it i don't think the explanation of it or the reveal uh does anything to pacify Mm -hmm. uh his bad behavior throughout yeah, I agree. I don't think they ever say his bad behavior is okay because the ends justify the means. I think that, right. that they are making the point that he ha- like he makes poor choices. Like episode four to me is so fascinating. It's the one that focus like kind of shifts the focus onto Margot in a really wonderful way where it's her mm-hmm. tension that is bristling. Like Ali almost comes off as naive in this episode. When he just kind of goes off, leaves his family, like, separated, all those things. And Margot is the one that we get to see being like, go get your brother. Like, we, this is bad. We need to leave. And so when she takes, like, there's, I think, um, Rupert Wyatt, who directed the first two episodes, he, in talking about the character of Margot, calls her the patriarch. He says, she's actually Mm -hmm. the patriarch of this family. And you really come to, like, see that come to fruition in episode four. Yeah, it's structured really well over these episodes, too, because that doesn't click into place for us in the audience. And, like, Margot kind of doesn't, you know, take, uh, like, reveal herself to be that until we're getting some really crucial information at the same time, too. So there's this hugely satisfying thing to, you know a lot of elements clicking into place. And uh, like I said earlier, you recontextualize what you've seen. Meanwhile, the moody version of Fleetwood Mac's gold dust woman plays. (laughs) And it's, uh, it's just good satisfying TV in that way. (laughs) It was like that dinner sequence. So this episode um, introduces Ophelia Medina as Lucretia, because they come into this villa in uh, Mexico and are, Clearly, there's something off going, and we find out she is the head of the family. There's a great setup to her character um, when someone says, you want to appeal to her better nature, but she doesn't have one. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, this is going to be a really good villain. Like, I can already tell. <laughs> um, and so the the standoff that Lucretia and uh, Margot have in the dining room when they are forced to have dinner with them after they've separated Charlie, the son, away from the family in order to try to take control is... I think one of my favorite parts of all four episodes was that conversation Mm -hmm. between these two complex women. 
And I think that kind of uh, that mirroring, which is unexpected for both characters, but then like comes together at the same moment, also kind of helps uh, subvert um, like concerns that this might be the more cliche version that's more problematic of like this type of villa that they're presenting and you know how we've seen those type of characters presented on screen Mm -hmm. um and then that it just kind of becomes this like standoff duet between the two women was also very satisfying it was right like i the moment where i'm and i'm not rooting for this family like it's clear like Obviously, I want the kids to be able to get out of this unscathed. But for the most part, like, I'm not rooting for this family because of how poorly they've impacted the people around them on multiple levels. And frequently, Mm -hmm. it's people of color around them that are getting, like, negatively impacted by by this family's decisions. But that moment when Margot echoes Lucretia and says, he won't be back until I say so, if at all. I was like, oh, the goosebumps. That was so good. (laughs) And then, uh, of course, the episode ends with uh, Chewie, who, like, I hope we do get to see more of Chewie. I just want to know that he's reunited with his daughter. (laughs) I know, Um, he's so good. uh, Played by Scotty Tovar, who's giving a really good performance. um, And we'll, we'll see if we see more of him. Um, but he gets to have this monologue that actually gets to say the thing that we in the audience are thinking, which I, you know, it just, the way some of the other episodes had end, it felt like it um, could have uh, not gone there. Mm-hmm. And I, it, I was really glad that it did. Um, and that he, finally, we get to see this family uh, called out in a way or held to task. Um in a way that, like, we do as an audience want to see that underlined in a way. Right. Like, that moment where they roll up to the bus stop and Allie leans forward and is like, you can get out here. And I was like, you're just gonna... I, I like, yelled at my screen. I was like, you're just gonna <laughs> leave him here? Like, no, 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 no. That is not okay. So I... Yeah, I agree with you. Like, Scotty Tovar in this moment is excellent. And watching him, like, get out of the car and force Allie to kind of recognize his complicity in the system that he supposedly is railing against just by virtue of not recognizing his own privilege and the actual human beings he is throwing away. You know, he has that moment in the second episode where he's telling his daughter to look at the um, homeless population and like, look what America does when you're a broken consumer, he says. Well, look at what you're doing to these people you don't think matter as much as your life does. Like you're letting them just get taken out left and right for the purposes of your survival. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was really nice to like be able to see that confrontation happen on screen and be on the side of – be on Chewie's side. Like mm-hmm. I want I want a spinoff for Chewie. Like I want to see <laughs> – I want this whole thing from his perspective. Like let me see his his story. <laughs> and – um. I would also say that this uh, scene, too, isn't just interesting in this way, but it's also interesting if you look at what's happening with the two Fox children Mm -hmm. in this scene, specifically Charlie, who has the moment where you really think he's going to pull out a gun on Chewie, and he makes the conscious decision, whether it's through safety or because of the ordeal he just went through uh, with his life or what he sees his father doing. Um, to not resort to violence or to actually diffuse the situation instead of accelerating it like the family has been doing every step of the way. Um, and I I hope that that continues to play out um, with Charlie's uh, narrative arc as well because, you know, you, you see Dina putting up more of a fight to the parents' ways um, so that was an interesting character beat as well. Yeah, I'm excited to see kind of where Charlie ends up going because that moment to me, I, I wasn't sure how to read that moment. You know, Charlie is a very, I think Charlie is the most naive of everyone because he has been so isolated and is so doting on his parents. Like they really did a disservice to their children by not preparing them for, for what could potentially happen. And so like when Charlie just goes off with the um, the son in earlier in the episode without talking to his family, I was like, 
kid, what are you doing? <laughs> what I understand that you're a little naive. However, this seems like a mistake. And so to build that that whole conversation around guns and and which is so fraught already and have it get to the point where he has this gun sitting in the waistband waistband and I really didn't know which way it was going to go. Like genuinely, I had no idea what Charlie as the character in that moment would do. And so I'm looking forward to kind of seeing where that path takes him, his choice not to engage. Mm -hmm. It does set up a lot for where the season could go or what the fallout is. And it really feels like a peak. So I'm curious to see if it keeps building. I think because of the opening title sequence throughout, we can kind of sense where it's building um, (laughs) because of the various locations uh, within it. But there's a really interesting family dynamic going on as well. Yeah, it, as it becomes more and more clear that we're not, like, the, these are not heroes meant to be sympathized with and rooted for. Like, I'm, I I don't, I didn't see the movie and I haven't read the book, so I don't know how the story is going to end. Yeah, I mean, I think if uh, any listeners have seen the movie and feel like they know what the show is, it's a very different show, at least from the movie. I haven't read the book, um, though the book seems... A little bit like its own thing still but it's it's all central around this family and uh kind of these ideas of destruction and consumerism but this one is i think far more ambitious than the movie in that like we mentioned as the stakes go up each episode it feels like you're going to a new location a new different set of uh circumstances that the foxes though they think that they are uh protecting themselves they are also uh resulting in destruction and death around them. Uh, and I think it's the show is minded towards that rather than just having like what's almost a character study of Allie as the mm-hmm. movie is. Um, and in finding these kind of like grander themes and this much larger scope, it can also uh, still pay as much mind to more nuanced character beats throughout. Yeah, there is a lot of potential for these kind of uh, strong character beats for characters who are not Allie, which I really appreciate because you have, you know, going back to this dinner sequence, I I keep coming back to it because it's such a strong scene Mm -hmm. across the four episodes because you have this character of Margot who so far has been so passive and has been so kind of just along for the ride you know she's had these moments whether it's you know surprising me in going along with Allie's plan or her excitement when they're stealing the money um or that scene where she dances with Chewy like there are these like brief moments of character we get of her but this dinner sequence where she takes full control like this is all her plan is so fascinating well, and I also love seeing that scene from Melissa George, who's had such like a loaded career in so many things. Like I remember her even being a kid and seeing her in the Amityville horror version that she was in um, as just kind of this really um, like keyed in actress to these like kind of grand uh, situations or these extreme circumstances and always bringing a humanity. So it was kind of, uh, really exciting to see the type of charge that she took in having a surprise because she's a really easy actress to uh, invest in and believe the circumstances as she presents them. Mm-hmm. It was it was great to watch her facial expression literally go from like kind of backed into a corner and in horror to like oh no 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 we're not doing this yeah. I'm. I'm in charge now. (laughs) Well, and it'll be interesting to see if that is her just, if there is more to Mm -hmm. it than her just taking charge in the situation, or if there's more to her background that we haven't discovered yet. Where do you think, or or where, because for me, I would love to see more of that side of this character. Like, I want to see that journey continue for Margot. Um, But what, what are you kind of hoping to see from the rest of the series? I would definitely love to see Definitely more of that from Margot, but definitely more of it in the family dynamic um, and kind of taking charge against Allie because it feels like as the thread goes on, um, and this would be true to the original movie and I guess the original book, uh, that he is going to lose some of the grip of what's happening and uh, leading them towards a certain level of their own destruction. But if Margot uh, kind of, for lack of a better term, 
gets in the driver's seat of what's <laughs> happening with this family. I think that could be really interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, we've got three more episodes to see what happens, and I can't wait to be on the edge of my seat the entire time. <laughs> and now let's hear Preeti's conversation with Melissa George, who plays Marco. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. <laughs> So I figure we'll get right into it. Um, I loved the four episodes that I've seen. It was super enjoyable to watch and very, very stressful, which was a fun experience. I always love when the show can like make my heart rate go up. I'm like, you're really, you guys are really good at what you're doing. Um, so I wanted to ask you, what drew you to the role of Margot? Like, what was it about the story of the series that speaks to you? For me, there was so many reasons, actually. Um, when I saw the script title on my, on my, the script that came in my inbox, um, I didn't know that Mosquito Coast was a book or, or a film, actually. Um, I just loved the concept and the name. And then I read it and I thought, oh, my God, a character drama of a family, a fugitive family on the run. That's super, super exciting. And usually for me in a script, it's always about one or two scenes that I know I can feel like uh, if I was to be lucky enough to play that part, I will fall in love with acting all over again. And for me, it was like the scene where I call my mom, the scene when I'm talking to my daughter, the scene in the desert, a lot of scenes in the number four episode. Um, so if I, if I can find one or two that I know that when I get to work, I'm going to be too scared to get out of my trailer because it's going to be the moment that I've been waiting for, then that's already a good sign that I would like it. But, you know, I'm talking like I was the only one that they wanted, you know. It was it was a, one of those jobs where I had the script for four months and I was so insecure at this point in my life because I hadn't been acting for so many years um, that I couldn't imagine uh, casting for it because I wasn't strong enough to lose it is, is what I've been saying. And, um, and of course, four months go by and my new agent said, uh, they've just called, Justin's just called, um, they said you did your casting, but everyone's saying they haven't seen it. And I said, no, I haven't done the casting. It's been four months. She goes, you have to do it now. You have to do the casting now. And I was like, oh, my God. So I set up my iPhone and I did the casting. I did one scene, three scenes they wanted me to do, and I was four months of just just wanting and needing and hoping that all just came out. And it's one of those beautiful calls that you get. Like my lawyer of 23 years that I've been working that I'm one of his clients. He's like, you just got like the best job of the year. Like how can you sit there in Paris and not even, not even, you know, take a job and all of a sudden you get the job you want. And I said, you know, it's because there's so many jobs I don't get that you don't hear of it. like a gambler you don't talk about what you lose you only talk about what you win you know so I got it and my lawyer was like so excited because I'm going to stay home on the weekend I'm going to do this deal around the clock and then we got a call from Rupert the director and he said please tell Melissa that this will be one of the hardest shoots you'll ever do and is she willing to come on this Fox family hunt 
And I said, you know, you always say yes. Like, are you a great horse rider? You're like, yeah, sure, I'm a great horse rider. Are you a great, you know, you always say yes. So I was like, yes, I can't wait to do that. And then the reality hit when I got um, to the desert, I would say. That's when I was like, oh, this job's going to, this, this role is going to really take it out of me. So I got lucky. We did the deal. I got on the plane and I hadn't seen Los Angeles in so long. And I got to see the... You know, when you, you see the Hollywood sign and, you know, I live there, it's no big deal for me. But then I was reminded of, like, when you're working in this town with people that you love and a role that you love, there's no better feeling. So That's such a wonderful story. Like, I, I love it. It's, it's got as much drama as some of the episodes. You're like, oh, man, the tension of waiting and then doing the casting and getting the role. That's that's awesome. That's a nice, like, behind-the-scenes, like, moment. But you mentioned, um, and I want to pick up on this, those few scenes that spoke to you in the script and one of them being when you call your parents in that first episode. Cause that was one of my favorite moments in the first episode because it gave, cause I always, I always love knowing more about the women when I'm watching a television show. I like to follow uh, their journeys. <laughs> and so I love that moment um, because it gives you insight into this character, which up to that point we've been kind of following Allie. And so I wanted to ask, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing more of that re- relationship potentially. And so can you tease anything for us? Yes, look, there's there's a strategic way of playing Margot, very, very well thought out uh, with looks and feelings and the way she is and her apprehension. And and each episode, I'm sure you see that there's a side of Margot that even the kids say, oh, how did mummy know how to do that, you know? And you slowly see the dependency of Ali and Margot together and why. And so each moment, because I know where we're going, I know what she's done, I know what the family is on the run from, I know all of these things, it really gives you this sort of leverage, you know, to really take things to another level. And calling my mum for me was so important to know that each year, for nine years on the run, she has called her mother on the same day. And I wanted to look around. It's the same phone box. It's the same thing. She knows what to do. She knows where to go. And so there was something, though, that I wanted to show in that moment where she knew this would be the year that they would get caught. When I'm turning around and scanning the horizon and she starts to shake, that's when I wanted to show that for some reason this phone call this year is not the same as the other years. Just, it's a, just a it's, thing, you know, like you do one take. I said to the director, I said, look, I've waited four months to do this scene. This scene is the reason why I want to do the show. So could we just shoot the close up first? Just please, because it's it, it's like you wake up in the morning on a recording day, on a big, heavy acting day, and your heart is heavy, you know. It feels heavy. You feel lump in your throat. You get to your trailer and you just can't wait to let it out. It's like something that you've wanted to tell somebody your whole life or, you know, and that finally you, the moment comes and you have to do it. And there's this feeling of like, because you're being recorded and it's for the world to see, you have this added pressure of like, don't mess up. Mm-hmm. Like, and that, that pressure, because I'm an athlete, I think is good. I think being an ex-athlete just gives you that sort of structure to, to drive it home. And then you forget that you shoot that scene like eight times from different angles, you know, like nobody sees that part. That's like the hardest part of all is the fact that you do the same scene, you know, 15 times from different angles. And by take, you know, eight and hour 10, your eyes are just like, (laughs) I wanted her to look, you know, not um, just, you know, I wanted to look natural. I didn't want to make, you know, just, just if I'm a bit aged or, you know, whatever, just, it's about just being Margot in all the glory, really. Yeah, I think I, I the 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 show does a really good job of focusing on your expressions, and so we get to see those almost micro expressions and those movements really nicely that give us so much of her character, especially early on when we don't get to see as much of the show from her perspective. Um, I, I I want to come back to that, but I did want to ask you kind of about one of the larger themes of the show, which. You know, Ali explicitly says it early on, which is this theme of American consumerism and its ill effects on society. And his stance is very, very clear. Mm. Margot's, I think, earlier on is a little bit more murky. Like we see her much more in relationship to her family and her relationship to Ali. But this big idea, um, her connection is a little bit murkier. Where do you think she falls in that belief system? She was a very wealthy girl. She was raised in a wealthy family. Um, she was a professor um, of, you know, literature. So she's quite, she used to dress perfectly. She had a massive job. 
and you will find out why she's no longer in that that profession. So she has no stance right now because she lost everything. It's almost like she looks at Ali and the minute they met, they were madly in love, but she had a different stature back then and then something has happened to make her lose that stature. She sometimes wishes she was back to that fancy life, you know, when she's working in the library and looking out at a dreary window and that's to show her that she went from being a professor to now working in a library. So what happened for her? So her stance... I mean, I don't think anyone in the family is on Ali's. Um, Ali has his own visions about things, you know. But that's what makes it exciting for Marga because I know where it's coming and I know where we're going and I know that the dilemma of the push and pull of where she feels she fits in this family is going to be explored even further. We get hints of her determination, which I really love, Um particularly in those moments, you know, there's a moment when they're about to leave, when the cops are coming and Ali is like, get your bag, we have to go. And he's in the his workstation and Margot comes in. Mm-hmm. And my instinct was that there's going to be a big blowout fight. Like they're going to have this fight. And then she just gets really excited. Yes, and good observation. Yes. It, yes, it was great. And, you know, we, we get to see that those like brief moments. And then in episode four, it like really comes to life in especially specifically in that dinner scene how did you approach that moment well in the in the I think there was a moment where she comes to tell the truth because she's guilty for calling the mother the Mm -hmm. parent she has he doesn't know that at this point so there's a lot of guilt coming out of that she realized the only way to deal with Ali is to join him so she comes in hesitant and then realizes that she gets sucked into that Bonnie and Clyde kind of they're almost sadistic with each other. The more sick his ideas and crazy his ideas are, the more she gets on board. There's two parts to that. One, it's, you know, it's fight or flight. If she doesn't join this, there will be a blowout fight and she just can't afford to do that and there's a big reason why, which we don't know yet. And then what I wanted in number four was to show that, okay, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it my way, Margot's way, and we know that when you do it Margot's way, you're going to get out of trouble. And that's what I wanted to show is that all of a sudden she knows how to blow out all those ties in the hacienda. She knows how to trick. She knows how to do that. Why? It's growing. It's the part of the, the tapestry of this, this character of just showing sort of the, the, the onion uh, layer, what, the layers of, what do you call it? And my, my English goes sometimes. The, <laughs> all the layers. You know the layers of the onion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, come out. So this is, this is the part that I wanted to show. And the kids are like, wow, mama is uh, – and, you know, there's a moment in the bedroom when she turns on Dina, where what did you say to Chewie? You know, that, that, that was a moment where I was like, I want her to do almost snap, not as a mother, but almost as an evil, almost like a, a woman that you don't recognise, just for a split second, and then she pulls herself back. So I'm trying to give you little hints as to where this is going, you know. and uh, We're, we're getting these... Yeah, 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 yeah. Tiny yeah. hints. I love it. Um, when Charlie was asleep in the car, for example, and she could, you know, stroke his face like a tender mother and she just, she pulls her hand back as, as to, you know what, I, I, I don't want to wake him up. You know, she, there's moments where she'll be super maternal and then just pull back. Rupert Wyatt, I was, I was reading some of the production notes prior to this and he referred to Margot as the actual patriarch of the family, not Ali. And, and of course, again, during that dinner sequence, it becomes very, very evident when she kind of takes the reins. Like, I, I don't think there is a line of dialogue for Allie to say for, for quite a bit of time in that moment. And, you know, when she's holding the gun, like you, you reference and shooting out the tires, like this notion of Margot being the patriarch, what does that what does that mean in terms of kind of traditional roles and how or, or even if they're subverted through her character? I mean, you know, it's weird. I've never been like a feminist or, you know, or I always believe, you know, women have such a beautiful place in society and men have such, I mean, I love men, you know, it's like you can't live without them. You can, you can live with, with them, you can't live without them, whatever. So I feel like it's very, in today's TV world, we obviously need, um, you can't afford to just call her mother, like in the film. Uh, she's more than that. Um, to be the patriarch of the family, I think yes. In, in my, with my sons too, I'm, I'm their, I'm their protector. I'm the one that will help them. I'm the one that will get them to safety. It's a tricky one because I can't give away too much. But yeah, she she realizes that when Ali's flailing, she has to step in. Um, 
but even the way Ali, but they work so well together, even though she's taking the reins in that scene, all of the decisions she's made has been worked through with Ali. The two of them don't operate without each other. Absolutely not. She never does something. She might do something, but Ali will quickly know why she's doing that, you know, and he loves that about her. I think you could see him just like, his eyes kind of glisten. It's almost like they have this push and pull relationship. It's not the healthiest relationship, I would say. I would highly, you know, I'm highly against, you know, promoting <laughs> this is the perfect marriage or the perfect family. But it worked. They work well. They work well. And I love that moment when we were shooting out the tires. It was just like, wow. You know, she doesn't blink at mm. all. Does she? The first few times I, I was getting all the tires perfectly and they were like, uh, you look a little too good. Huh? So let's let's do a few takes where you miss maybe a few tires. I'm like, miss? Do I have to miss? Okay, I'll try and miss. <laughs> so I was like, you know, it's. I also think when you when you cross the roles too of like giving a woman, you know, wearing this beautiful Hacienda Mexican sort of gown with a, you know, a pistol like in the, the glorious light, you know, I guess we're going against, you know, um, the cliche, but... Um, but I love it. I even love the getaway of just jumping and just getting in the car with one thing and keeping the arm outside the window, like all of those little things. And the kids are just like, wow, mum's, mum's, uh, where did she learn to do that? You know? So yeah. Fun. She, she got these like great traditional sort of like, um, symbols of power in those moments. Like she is behind the driver's wheel, quite literally, like making, like getting them, moving them from point A to point B. And you kind of mentioned these notions of like, uh, her moments of being maternal and her moments of being protector. And we often find that women are defined by the roles they're playing in their characters' lives, you know, kind of like episode, I love the episode four title of mother, daughter, sister, godmother, because it, it feels like a cheeky way of pointing that out. And Margot, while she's clearly informed by these pieces of who she is, isn't isn't simplified into one of those boxes. But what do you think does define her? I think she's the man and woman in one. She's She takes both qualities. She takes the masculine side and the feminine side and brings them together. She can do both. There was a documentary on Apple where they showed cubs, you know, lions in the wild uh, filmed at night and you could see how they behave in the night, you know. And I watched it and to me that was Margot 100%. It's like, you know danger's coming. You know you shouldn't leave your cubs but you're going to, and you're going to fight blood, tooth and nail. And to me, that's exactly the way Margot is. And that's how she, that's how I feel about her. She would go to the lengths of danger to protect herself too. There's a big reason why. Less and less and less Ali for some reason, when he turns on her in number five, I think this is like a big, big no-no for her. So turning on Margot, not really answering your question, but it's, um, She's a mother first and foremost, but she will she will go to you know whatever she has to do to protect her her babies. Just like you'll see in that documentary, you know she she leaves her kids for her cubs. The, the lion leaves the cubs for two days, for two days straight to go get food. To go get food. I'm sorry, my kids are hungry. They may not make it because I had to go and get food. But what's worse, dying of hunger or risking leaving them to go and get food and bring it back? You know, you're const- she's constantly making the choice whether to go left or right. That gave me goosebumps in context of Margot's character. Um, lion, a little lioness. Yeah, that, that notion of, like, having to make those hard choices and having somebody who truly, like, thinks in that context mm. and seeing that person on screen and knowing that is going to be, I think, shifting maybe a little bit of how we watch, or how I watch at least, the, the final episodes. Um I, I want to focus a little bit on episode four because it is the most most recent when uh, when this is coming out, and it, I truly, to me, felt like a pivotal shift for Margot's character because she gets to take so much more ownership of the story. Mm. Um, so I want to ask, like, what was shooting that like? You know, it it not only involves that focus shift onto Margot, it introduces the character of Lucretia, played by Ophelia Medina, and it was directed by Natalia Berstein. Like, can you tell us a little bit about that experience, you know, getting to focus on these complex women um, with Natalia at the helm? Um, Natalia was exceptional. I I think it really helped to be directed by a female, absolutely. Um, 
Ophelia being such a, a legend actress in Mexico, so we got to have ha, have that. But we worked um, every day actually on rehearsals of just drilling the dialogue round and round and round and round to find moments. And for me, it was less about acting and more about reacting. And I didn't want to drive the scene. I wanted to react as much as possible. And because pretty much episode four is with Margot's sort of um, force, she's the force of that episode, it was a lot to just map it, map it out perfectly, um, don't hit the same notes at the same time. Pages, you have to look at the pages, you know. I always think of Mel Gibson when he used to put the pages around the trailer and sort of do a graph, you know, of like, emotions like where did you hit this kind of emotion and so it's not all one line you know you want to go up you want to go down you want to go super high you want to you want to orchestrate it like a piece of music and so Natalia and Ophelia and I really sat down and just tried to make a great piece of music really in that in that scene and uh, it was it was also about me keeping it small you know sometimes when you feel things so strongly you forget how your face is looking you know like I'm very expressive and I thought I need to keep it as tight as possible, as small as possible, so that that you're not distracted so much about my facial expressions, but more about what I'm saying. And that was that took a lot of takes, I would say. What was it like shooting on that location, that that kind of beautiful home, and you know, the set is just gorgeous. I mean, phenomenal. Like every day, I was like, can can you guys send that to Paris? That chair, like. You see that beautiful chaise lounge with the little wicker planter? Can you guys wrap that up and send it to Paris? They're like, yeah, no, this is the set, Melissa. We we can't take pieces of the set away. And I'm like, oh, I was so inspired, you know, by the atrium and the flooring and the paint, and I was just taking tons and tons of pictures. So for me, it just painted this perfect um, sort of uh, image for me to just play in these sort of – this, that beautiful dress and, you know, I, and I remember it was Logan's birthday, so we had a mariachi band and we were all dancing in the courtyard. Of course, we were, like, running behind. So we're like, yeah, this is not a funny day. We've got a serious scenes to shoot, you know, but it was just a lot of joy. You know, there's been, especially because we came out of the desert episode, which we was really hard, hard physically, hard mentally, and then we got to come to Mexico and go, wow, okay, this is the best. So it was great, absolutely amazing. Something I found uh, very interesting watching it, and especially in episodes three and four, as more cast is introduced and it's not quite so focused just on this family, but also on what this family is doing and the ramifications they're having on the people around them. Um, but in in these like episodes three and four, how Margot and Dina, specifically under Ali's direction for Dina, use their place as white women and their perceived fragility to pull Chewie over to their cause, though it only works to an extent. How did you kind of decide to play those scenes with Scotty Tovar, which were truly just like mesmerizing to watch? Oh, I'm so glad you loved it. Yeah, it's um, we were it was tricky because we were kind of like bait, you know, um, to pull him over to our side. I mean, there was a lot of work on that storyline because a lot of us didn't know was it Dina or was it me? Are we using Dina? A lot of us, I think, the parents use the kids a lot to get certain things that they need, which is very bad. Um, and the kids are willing to go along with it. So Dina was like kind of the the person, she was like the pawn in the chess match really um, for us in a lot of ways. But it was hard because, you know, I think seriously we did have a, an affection for Chewie, you know. There was a moment where we were taking care of him, but I'm a bit wary to say that for Margot because I know where she knows what's going on, so I'm, I, I don't want to give too much away. Um, but I know that is it sincere or is it just part of the plot for her to get to where she needs to get to? Um, I, this conversation is making me be like, oh, I want to know what happens. <laughs> well, you know, also like when we went to see Chewie in the Hacienda and he's been hurt, we're checking in on him. I just said to Natalia, I'm sorry, I don't really care so much if he's doing okay or not. I'm more concerned about the security cameras. And so I just played it by looking up, up in the corners all the time. Yeah, I think part of what makes these moments interesting because my narrative instinct would tell me it was going to go one way and then it would go another way because that scene, when they go to see him, you kind of expect, based on the scenes you've seen earlier, some sort of like uh, warmth. But it was a very cold scene, which I, I liked. I liked that it took that route because it felt very real and authentic for mm. the character. Yes. Um, I think it's um, 
you know, acting, I mean, acting is really uh, telling a story perfectly uh, when there's so many elements at play, like a direct, you know, our director has a certain point of view, the actors come to set with their certain point of view, the cinematographer has to light you to show the certain point of view. All of those elements, if you're really lucky, all of a sudden it's just magic. It's pure magic. It's effortless. And I felt like shooting this was effortless, really. It felt it felt like a lot of the work was done by sitting and reading and reading and reading and finding the meaning of the words. But by the time you get to set, it's just effortless. It feels like it's you're at the right place filming the right scene with the right emotion at the right time. And it doesn't often happen that way. You know, you're on set sometimes and it's just forced and it doesn't feel authentic and for real that's thanks to product the production coordinator and our producer ed mcdonald because he they found these sets they found these places to make us feel like we were really living in that place and they were authentic where we were nothing was fake so that was the gift of the show i think and that really shows on screen is by by seeing the fact that these sets were the real thing you want to go to mexico city and run in a market you're going to be in mexico city running in a market it was just like wow a logistic nightmare and, and tough personally because you're like, huh, God, where am I going now? You know, like, where where is this set? Like, am I going to make it? Am I going to make it out alive? You know, it's like one of those feelings. It's uh, But great. I mean, it makes us, you have to act less, really. It's just all there. <laughs> what do you hope people get out of watching the story of this family? Like, what kinds of conversations do you hope it inspires? To be honest, the conversation we're having, I want people to ask questions like that. You know, it's, I am having a lot of these conversations with friends, like by text and WhatsApp and FaceTime, people all over the world are like, oh my God. So it's really nice. You know, not often do you do a show where it makes people ask, ask questions about, you know, what's going on with this family, what period is it set in? Because there's no technology. That's what I love. That's it's modern day, but the fact that we remove the element of technology all of a sudden makes it timeless, and that's what I love the most. Thank you so much for listening to this special episode of Still Watching, presented by Apple TV+. New episodes of The Mosquito Coast drop every Friday on Apple TV+. You can find me and my work on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram mostly at Run With Skizzers. That's S-K-I-Z-Z-E-R-S. Uh, and you can find my books and my work at my website, PreetiChibber.com. This episode was edited and produced by Dave Gonzalez. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs.